I'm going to ask you to turn with me this morning in the Word of God to Ephesians chapter 3. Ephesians chapter 3. Our text this morning is going to be verses 14 through 21, but we're just going to go ahead, or rather 18 to 21, we're going to go back and pick up at verse 14 with the beginning of context. So I'm going to ask you to stand wherever you are, whether you're here or in front of a screen or a phone, out of respect for the reading of the holy, infallible, inspired, and inerrant word of the living God. For this reason, I bow my knees before the Father, from whom every family in heaven and on earth derives its name, that he grants you, according to the riches of his glory, to be strengthened with power through his Spirit in the inner man, so that you may do what Christ may dwell in your hearts through faith, and that you, being rooted and grounded in love, may be able to comprehend with all of the saints what is the breadth and length and height and depth, and to know the love of Christ, which surpasses knowledge, that you may be filled up to the fullness of God, now to him who is able to do far more abundantly beyond all that we ask or think, according to the power that works within us, to him be the glory in the church and in Christ Jesus to all generations forever and ever. Amen. Well, you may be seated. I'm fairly certain this morning that if I were to go around and ask each one of you if there's a scripture verse that sort of hangs over your thinking, or at least it's one of those verses that you keep coming back to as a sort of touchstone, a, a verse that sinks into your mind and penetrates your thinking because uh, its truth is, is so captivating and it has such wide application. Well, one text that is that for me is Jeremiah 79. It's a text you learned on your mama's knee, right? It's that verse that says, The heart is desperately wicked above all things. Who can know it? Not a very flattering verse, is it? But it's a verse that's full of truth. Even the regenerate can't fully know the depths of their own motives in their heart. Because sin is still pervasive within us. And so that means that this business of motivations is always a bit tricky, isn't it? Because of the sinfulness of our heart, because of how our desires and our longings are corrupted by sin, we constantly are in need of biblical correction down in the depths of our heart. That scripture may properly motivate us and teach us about God-honoring purposes. And that even pertains to the spiritual exercise of prayer. You see, I was uh, led to think about this connection because the apostle here makes that connection. Not necessarily so much between uh, sinful motives and purposes, but he certainly does in this text bring up and forge a connection between prayer and purpose. It's fairly evident to see in your text 
it stands out like a sore thumb in verse 19 in that word that. Fairly evident there, the apostle is thinking in terms of the purpose of his prayer here. As he says, that you may be filled up to all the fullness of God. But what's interesting is that one purpose is chained and connected to the next because no sooner does the apostle give us that as the purpose of the prayer that he transitions from prayer request and purpose to turn to God as he says now to him who is able and he concludes it with to him be glory. So one purpose is inseparably connected to the next. And the thought pieces together something like this. The apostle here in this second request is praying that the people of God would come to know more fully and experientially the knowledge of Christ so that, for the purpose that, to secure a goal of that they would become more mature, filled with all the fullness of God, in order that... God would be glorified. You see, the connection of ideas here is basically this, that the apostle is leading us to pray with that first great petition of the Lord's Prayer in the forefront of our mind, hallowed be thy name. The prayer that is properly regulated and properly purposed and aimed is always a prayer which at its outset, at least in terms of the aim and goal and the place where it's heading is always this, that God would be hallowed, that God would be glorified. And the way the apostle here is teaching us that God would be glorified through prayer is that as we grow in the knowledge of Christ, it will be transformative and that transformation will be unto the glory of God himself. So the prayer teaches us this morning about the pursuit, uh, um, the purpose of the pursuit of doctrinal knowledge. It's that we grow in godliness in order that God may manifest and display his glory in the transformation that takes place in us through praying in this way. We're going to break that idea up in a few different parts. First of all, we're going to think about the prayer for knowledge and then the purpose of the knowledge, and finally, the confidence in securing this knowledge of God. So, we begin this morning with the prayer for knowledge, and, well, it's uh, fairly straightforward here. As we come into our text, he says, may be able to comprehend with all of the saints what is the breadth and length and height and depth, and to know the love of Christ, which surpasses knowledge. This is a prayer for the knowledge of Christ. And I think it's important for us to begin with structure. With structure. It feels just a bit odd to jump in the middle of our text here at verse 18 with may be able. And, and the reason is because this is a very long, complicated sentence. And really, we need to go back to verse 14. We need to go back to verse 14, where we see the apostle here turn away from doctrine back to prayer in those words for this reason. And just to review for a moment about last time we expounded on this particular prayer, we said that for this reason is a repetition. It is a repetition of what you see in verse 1, where the apostle there says, for this reason. 
And that means if we are to locate the reason or the thing which motivates and drives this prayer, we're going to have to reach back into chapter 2 where the apostle has just been. And you see that thread which we pluck out of chapter 2, which we argue is the motivating aim of this prayer, signaled by for this reason, it is the grand and the vast and glorious thought of the Gentiles being reconciled to God and then being reconciled in the one body of Christ along with the, Gent uh, the Jews. So it's this enormous idea of Jews and Gentiles sitting together as one, as reconciled in Christ and in his body. That's a massive piece of theology. And what the apostle is praying for in this prayer is the grace that is needed within us that that takes effect. You see, it's one thing to confess the right idea, to speak of the right doctrine, but the apostle knows that in order for that theology to be put into practice in the life of the church, there is going to need to be subjective renewal and transformation within the body of Christ. So that these people who are experiencing this rich overflow of reconciling grace will have the strength to put it into practice. And so the first thing that, that he prayed for was that Jesus Christ would more and more be formed in us. That Christ would more and more take up residence within us. And then he transitions from that to this prayer request now. We've moved from verse 14, the opening, to the first prayer request that Christ would take up residence within us. And now here we are in verse 18. You may be able to comprehend with all the saints what is the breadth and length and height and depth. And to know the love of Christ. So there's your prayer request. To know the love of Christ. That's it. And this vast thing here is remarkable. Let's think about this love of Christ. It has uh, many parts. And the first part of it, we can say, is vastness. And that vastness is suggested <clears throat> in verse 18. What is breadth and length and height and depth? There's your vastness. Can it be measured? In other words, the apostle is giving us a sense of this four-cornered sheet or piece, breadth, length, height, and depth, can we put it together? The apostle is basically saying, can't measure it really. Verse 19, we see more. It's uh, mysterious in the sense that it surpasses knowledge. It's beyond what we can know. It's greater than a scale or degree that we can grasp. But it moves beyond that, and maybe there's some angles on it that we could draw from other passages of Scripture. And one of those would be uh, Philippians 2. And here, uh, if you would just turn it up a minute, there's a couple of things in this passage which really unfolds for us the love of Christ, this vast idea the Apostle is thinking of. And you can see that beginning in verse 6, where we work our way into the condescension of Christ's love. 
where it says here in verse 16, or rather 6, who existed in the form of God, did not regard equality with God a thing to be grasped, but emptied himself, taking the form of a bondservant, and being made in the likeness of man. And so here you have this condescension as the apostle moves from the lofty idea that Jesus Christ existed in the form of God and was equal with God. He, he begins with uh, the panorama of the viewpoint of heaven, that Jesus Christ before incarnation is in the form of God and equal with God. And then he moves from heaven to earth here with taking the form of a bondservant, being made in the likeness of men. And so the condescension is this great move from riches to poverty by Jesus Christ. This great condescension is a move from riches of divinity with all of its privileges to the condescension of taking upon himself likeness of men. And then he develops another angle on that here, the service of love or Christ's servant-like love, where he says that the thing that he emptied himself to be is the form of a bondservant. And the idea of form is external appearance. And then the external appearance is that of being a bondservant, which uh, in those days would have been the lowest class of humanity, the absolute lowest class of humanity. It would be those people who have no rights and no privileges, who are not just made slaves, but born slaves. And so it's a servant love. It's a Humble love or humiliating love, as you can see from verse 8, being found in the appearance as a man, he humbled himself by becoming obedient to the death of the cross. Notice the humility of it all. The humility is spelled out here, being obedient to the point of death. So the humiliation is connected to the cross. And, and the key thought here is that Jesus by humbling himself, is becoming the legal basis for our redemption by taking upon himself the curse of God's wrath, which was due to us for our sins. So it's a humble love or a humiliating love. It's a sacrificial love, as the apostle speaks of in Ephesians 5, 2, as Christ loved you and gave himself for you, an offering and a sacrifice to God as a fragrant aroma, all kinds of imagery there which draw out the sacrificial nature of that love. And then finally, I think we could say it is a love of motivation, a motivating love. Hebrews 12, 2. Here the preacher says, fix your eyes on Jesus, the author and perfecter of the faith, who for the joy set before him endured the cross, despising its shame. A humiliating love. Because here the preacher says there's something about what Christ did on the cross which is applicable to us. It shows us what kind of endurance is needed for the Christian life. And he brings us, as it were, into the very mind of Christ as he sees the shame of the cross set before him. And he asks the question, why does he endure it? Why does he endure that gross, inconceivably enormous shame? Of the cross and the answer is as the preacher says for the joy brought before him there's your motivating love the joy set before him is that Jesus Christ endured the shame of the cross 
and all of its degradation for the motivation which was set before him, which was us in Christ in glory. He endured the shame, being motivated on the purpose and the end and the effect of the cross, which is that we will be reconciled to God through him. And so we have a series of things here which unpack this deep and boundless and unmeasured love of Christ. It's incomprehensible. It's condescending. It's servant-like. It's humiliating. It's self-sacrificing. And it's motivating. The thing about all this is the Apostle Paul says, we're not adequate for it. We're not adequate for it. That seems to me the whole purpose and reason for the prayer here. He says um, here in Ephesians that we would be strengthened. That word means to be able to seize and grasp with force something. And that thing which is to be seized and grasped is this great love of Christ. It's obvious to us, people of God this morning, that the Ephesians already knew about the love of Christ. They knew about the cross. They knew about grace. They knew about redemption. But the apostle is suggesting here by the very fact that he prays that they would be strengthened to know this love of Christ, that they are inadequate to it by themselves. That without the help of God, without the strength of the Holy Spirit, there's something about it they just can't know. Charles Hodge puts it like this, without being strengthened by the Spirit, it is impossible to have any adequate knowledge of the love of Christ or the gospel. I realize that might sound strange to our ears this morning. Because after all, if there's any elementary truth that we could think that we know, it would be the, the gospel. It would be the love of Christ. If there's any basic thing that we can say as part of the Christian life, some ABC of knowledge that we could know, it would be Christ's love. But the apostle says, take the most rudimentary and the most basic element of our faith. And he says, you, no matter how advanced in all of your learning you are, are still inadequate to this knowledge. And the only way that you can grasp it and know it and grow in it is prayer. It's by strengthening through the Holy Spirit. It seems to me this morning, this ought to be such a humbling idea to us, the way the apostle prays. How it, it strips away all uh, notion of pride or intellectual arrogance or haughtiness or smugness. That the most basic thing about Christianity can't be known on our, by ourselves or on our own. We need this great strengthening of Christ by his spirit through prayer. There's a tendency to underestimate this knowledge. And so Calvin, his comment here, really seemed to uh, jump out at me as he said, he who is in possession of this alone has enough. Think of it. I'll read it again. He who is in possession of this alone has enough. To know the love of Christ with the help of God's spirit, Calvin says, is to know enough. He says, in this wisdom, we possess everything that we need. What a, 
important uh, affirmation that is for us this morning. What an important way for us to reorient our thinking. Because it can be too easy for us reform types to think that the love of Christ is just milk. It's just the mere ABCs. It's just phase one of the Christian life. And we need really to plunge ourselves into the weightier, deeper, meat and potatoes things of the word of God. And yet here is um, Calvin telling us this morning that if you've only mastered this, it's enough. It's to possess all the wisdom that you need. What a challenge for us this morning to make sure that our thinking about the most basic aspect of Christianity is something that we find we are content with to know the love of Christ. And to make sure that this prayer for this knowledge is at the forefront of our praying for the knowledge of spiritual things. To know the love of Christ. Well, that's the prayer request. We move on now to the purpose of that. Again, we come back into verse 19. To know the love of Christ which surpasses knowledge. And here's your connector, indicator of purpose. That you may be filled to all the fullness of God. So piece it together. We have the apostle praying that we would be strengthened to comprehend the infinite love of Christ. That we may know it and comprehend it for the reason be filled of God. You read this clause here in verse 19. The fullness, it feels tricky. In fact, it feels like one word is adding something more complex than one. What in the world is it that we're praying for when we pray that we would be filled to the fullness of God? It reminds us of what I said last week, as as I said the first time I prayed this with a, a few guys on the football team as a team building exercise after practice that we were praying this and uh, we were struck the faintest idea of what they were praying for, because the concepts are enormous. As we come into that, feels like it's difficult. And one way we can enter into the knowledge of this is, is ask a very simple question. Where has Paul used this word fullness before? If he would have us filled to all the fullness of God, we should ask, where has he used this language before? And one passage is Colossians 2.9. Of Jesus in him. All the fullness of deity dwells in bodily form. In Christ. In Christ, he says, in him dwells the fullness. That's our word. Fullness of deity is just a little bit different than fullness of God. But essentially the concept is parallel. That Jesus Christ in his incarnate form is filled with all the fullness of God. And you see, still, what does that mean? And so you ask Charles Hodge, right? And Charles Hodge, this great commentator, says that it speaks of the moral perfections of God. This is the language of moral excellence. 
moral maturity, moral fullness. But how do we connect that to our prayer? And it seems to me that the answer to that is found if you just turn your Bible uh, over to Philippians 4.13. It's just a few verses down from our text, really. And it's likely that the Apostle Paul here is taking up this very same prayer request and he's unfolding it a bit more now. This time in connection with the purpose of the giving of the ministry within the church. But I want you to see here that the Apostle tells us there's there's applicable reasons for the ministry being given to the church in verse 13. It's until we attain to the unity of the faith and of the knowledge of the Son of God and to a mature man to the measure of the stature which belongs to the fullness of Christ. Now we have our word in parallel again. Here we have uh, the fullness of Christ. We've already seen that this idea of fullness is about moral excellence. And so here in this very third reason for uh, the giving of the ministry for the sake of the church here, the apostle says, one, it's to achieve the unity of the faith. Two, to go to the knowledge of the Son of God. And three, here's our text, to a mature man. There's your aim for the ministry of the word. That all of the people of God will grow to maturity. And the word there has the same sense or meaning that we would think of when we use it in English. It's the full outgrowth of the person, right? It's moving from and transitioning from, from childhood into being an adult. So it means the same thing there. But it's just that the apostle goes on to qualify that to let us know exactly what he's thinking of in terms of what it should look like to the believer. And so he says, to the measure of the statue which belongs to the fullness of Christ. So the measure of the stature, the maturity that he would have us seek is the maturity or the measure of the stature which belongs to Christ. So he's saying, here's your model. First of all, there is to be maturity, but that maturity has an aim. It has a target. It has something definite that it is looking to, which is the measure of the fullness of Christ's maturity, of his moral excellence. And so you see then, as you come back to connect our ideas into our text, the apostles' purpose of praying that we would know the love of Christ is that it would impact our lives and so thoroughly transform us that we would be conformed to the moral excellence of Christ. Now, there's a lot of debate in the commentators as to whether this is something that can be accomplished in this life. And it seems to me fairly evident that it cannot be. But, but you'll remember in Romans chapter 8, that the apostle is unfolding the great purpose of, of predestination is so that we would be conformed to the image of his son. That's the same idea here. And so whether we debate over whether it can be achieved in this life, and it seems that it cannot be, it doesn't mean that the aim has changed. And the aim has changed. And the aim is simple. The aim is that Paul 
in setting forth this prayer is setting forth God's purpose for you. You see, Paul, in setting forth this prayer, is setting forth the aim which God has for you this morning. That you would be so captivated by and so steeped in and so full of the knowledge of the love of Christ that you would mature to his moral excellence, that you would be conformed to the image of Christ. And so this prayer then, people of God, teaches us that we are to seek spiritual maturity. It's telling us that the way we obtain that great aim, that great objective, that great purpose, is by humbling ourselves and praying that God would fill us with this experiential knowledge of the love of Christ. Now, it's a vast goal. It's a great goal. It's a worthy goal. It's one that captivates every person that ever grasps it because it's so all-encompassing. It's so needed. But it's a large prayer request. And so, uh, whether this is the reason why the apostle concludes his prayer like this, I can't be sure, but I can't help but notice that no sooner does Paul unfurl this rich repository of request and spiritual instruction, he pivots immediately from us to God. Notice verse 20, not to him who is able. And I think the purpose of this now, and it brings us into our third point, is to give us the confidence of securing this knowledge. To give us the confidence of securing this knowledge. He turns us now from prayer requests to God. And the first thing he says about God is he is able. The very first thing that he has us focus on is the total adequacy of God, right? He is able. The word is he is powerful. It literally reads to the powerful one. See, he's turning our thoughts away from ourselves and our own desperation, our sense of inability, our weakness, our wondering aloud, is any of this even possible? And he says, stop looking at yourself. Stop thinking in terms of your resources and power. You're not even adequate to grasp the love of Christ. How could it possibly be that you're adequate to become conformed to the moral maturity of Christ? No, we focus not on ourselves, but the Lord, God, and his power, he moves from prayer to the omnipotence of God. And not just the omnipotence of God, but the power of God in action. He says, not to him who is able. <laughs> to him who is able to do power in performance. Power in answering prayer. Power in fulfilling his promise. And, and he leaves us uh, in the middle of deep waters and thinking about that, doesn't he? he? He takes us by the hand, as it were, and leads us into the very depths of that. As he says, he's able to do above what we can ask or think. The confidence of praying this is clear. He leaves us to think about God and his power and his ability and his performance. He says, stretch your mind as far as you can stretch it. 
And God's power is still vast in its depth and scope and ability and capacity beyond that. Confidence in our praying. We may say this morning, why should I need such confidence in God's power? Why does it matter that the apostle would connect these ideas together? Vast prayer requests with a testimony of vast divine power. And the answer is because God will be glorified in our prayers in a particular way. And that is if we pray with full assurance that he is able. Remember how James puts it? He says that we are to seek God for that wisdom which we don't have. And to do so without doubting, without wavering. Because the person who doubts and wavers is displeasing to God. So the way we secure this is by trusting that God has the power and the capacity and the willingness and the obedience to work and to do beyond what we conceive. The ground of confidence in our praying is to know the power of God is there. It's available. It's ready for action. And then there's a second ground of confidence. And again, I'm not precisely sure if the apostle strings it together as this intentionally, but clearly... He transitions from God of power to God glorified, right? God glorified. God would glorify himself. So he says, to him be the glory in the church. You see, the point of it is God would receive the glory by the change in us. God would receive the glory by the change worked in us and brought about in us through Jesus Christ. And there's your aim. Paul prays that we would grow so that we would mature, so that God would display his glory in how he transforms our life. Great grounds here for confident praying. <laughs> and so we bring our message to conclusion this morning. And I want us to conclude just basically where we have finished here with the exposition. And one commentator here says something that captured my thinking to lead us into the point of application where he said it's possible to ask for good things for bad reasons and those bad reasons would be selfishness the the bible talks about asking for things amiss and therefore we don't get them what's the reason for praying for great things and for great change and the answer is very clear it's not so that we get the glory. It's so that God puts on his marvelous display of glory in how he answers our prayer and how he changes us. The end was always clear from the beginning in Paul's thinking, just as it was with Christ and his teaching his church how to pray. Hallowed be thy name. The purpose of the praying is not for us, The purpose of the praying is ultimately that God's power would be put on display as he answers our prayer and gives this knowledge, which leads to this great transformation, which builds us up closer to the maturity of the moral excellence of Christ. And it's all for a great reason. God's name would be hallowed. God's glory would shine forth. And so this morning... We understand that we pray for things approved by God with the aim 
of glorifying God's day, we can be assured that not only will he be pleased to hear and answer our prayer, but he'll use that as an occasion to hallow his name. Father, we thank you this morning for Paul's prayer and for what it teaches about us, about Christ, and about you. We have, uh, Father, before us uh, a great goal, which is that we would not be children, but mature adults spiritually in the Lord. And we know that the means of that is growth in the knowledge of the love of Christ. And so would you impress upon our hearts just how desperately we need this knowledge in order that we would be driven to our knees in prayer to seek from above the only resource that is enabling us to pursue this great end, and that is the power of the Spirit of God working within us. Would you be pleased, O oh Lord, to take that knowledge and to use it in a grand and glorious way to put your power on display by working real spiritual transformation in the hearts and minds and lives of the people of Christ's church. Lord, would you do that? We ask it in faith now and in Jesus' name. Amen.